0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Karen. I'm a recovered compulsive eater from Syracuse, New York, and my credits don't transfer. Our hosts today are Nancy J from Illinois, Kathy M from Georgia, Eileen W, uh, she's being shy, and Sue L from Pennsylvania. The 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 duration of the big book study will will be recorded. If um, anybody has a question uh, after the Q&A, the Q&A will not be recorded. You can uh, message me or one of the co-hosts. We ask you to make sure that you keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And please turn off your video if you're exercising or eating, if you need to step away from your your, uh, computer screen for any reason. And Sue will put the uh, previous week's recording if we have them, uh, the seventh edition in the chat function. Okay, Harlan, you're up. We're starting with the employers. It is August 28th, is it? 19, 2021, right? Yes, it is. Thank you very
1: much, Karen. Thank you for all you do. And uh, so, so wonderful. And uh, thank you to everybody who makes this possible. You, you may be looking at me but you are watching the work of many, many people who have made this possible. We were just talking before the recording started about all the work and all the uh, ingenuity of the people that knew how to put this together. Uh, This started at the coffee plantation here in Scottsdale, Arizona, as a live kind of thing. And we used to get I don't know, sometimes as many as 20, sometimes as few as three or four, depending upon the week, depending upon whatever. And now we're running about 140, 150 people a week on here on Zoom, and we're reaching a lot more people in a lot more places. I'm eternally grateful to all of you who have gone before me to make this possible. We are going to be discussing the chapter to employers. And obviously we're not gonna finish it today. We're just beginning the chapter, but let's take a look at some things about the chapter that are probably of interest to some, but maybe not to others. We're gonna look at them anyway, bear with me. In the chapter working with others, chapter seven, we are introduced to step 12. And step 12 is a three part step. There's three parts to step 12. The first part is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So, the first part of the 12th step tells you what it is you need to have accomplished so that you can go out and sponsor. And that is, you must have had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And the second part of step 12 is we try to carry this message. It's not about my message, it's not about anyone's message. It's the message of the book. It's the message of the program. And the basic text of our program is in the book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And then the third part is what we're going to be really looking at today. It says simply, and to practice these principles, what are the principles? The principles are the steps, The prince the practice these principles in all of our affairs and in chapter eight, which is the first chapter after working with others, we first visit two wives and whether you have a wife or you don't have a wife or you have a husband or you don't have a husband. We're looking at the person or people closest to you. And when you are a human being, not just an addict, not just an alcoholic, compulsive overeater, gambler, sex addict, love addict, whatever it is you may be addicted to, or whether you're a normal person when it comes to your relationship with things like that. You are gonna bounce off these people in a way where you are gonna hurt them and they are going to hurt you. That is the nature, unfortunately, of intimacy. Into me, I see. And the closer we are to some people, the more difficult it may be to maintain a level of comfort most of the time. Because we, they know all our buttons, they know how to push them, and we know their buttons and we know how to push them. The second chapter after chapter seven is chapter nine, which is the chapter entitled the family afterwards. So that the people that are in the, not in that spousal or that closest person, but in that immediate small circle around you, and you're going to be bouncing off of them too. I remember very distinctly when my daughter was very young, my daughter came into the world. I was in recovery. And then shortly after she was born, I went into relapse and I stayed in relapse until she was four years old. And I gained back an enormous amount of weight. And I remember this being very, very uh, traumatic in my life. Very traumatic. Uh, we lived in Eugene, Oregon at the time that Hannah was born. Hannah is my daughter. And Hannah was a, a beautiful child. She looked just like my dad. She, ha- she never met him. He was dead. He died in 1978 and she was born in 1994. So there is a, a gap between his death and her birth. She has his sense of humor. She has a lot of his mannerisms. She speaks English, which was hard for him. And she doesn't smoke Chesterfield King size one after the other. But other than that, she was a little him. She was a, a little Max Grabowski, very, very much uh, the same as, as he was. And uh, she uh, was, a, was a child that was just very smart, very precocious. She was just a wonderful, wonderful kid. But I was in relapse. And in Eugene, Oregon, for those who do not know, it rains about 250 to 275 days a year. And this was a very rainy Tuesday. And my Hannah was four years old. And uh, Halloween that year was on a Saturday night. And the my Hannah was a, a student, a student. She was a kid at something called the Big Little School. And the Big Little School was, an, was a nursery school that she attended so that my wife could have a little bit of a break. My wife was a stay-home mom the first seven years, eight years, seven years of Hannah's life, which was great because the business you know, uh, gave us that. But anyway, that aside, Hannah was crying. It was a Tuesday. Hannah was crying and I mean, crying from the toes. And it was a Tuesday and I came home. I used to get home from work about 3.30 in the afternoon. I would leave for work about 5.15 in the morning and I would get home at about 3.30. And she was crying and my then wife came and says, I wanna talk. Whenever a female says we need to talk, It's never gonna be good news. It's never gonna be something pleasant. It's not usually good. But anyway, um, that aside, she said, Hannah doesn't want you to come to the spaghetti dinner on Friday night. Now the big little school for Halloween was having a spaghetti dinner and then the kids would go to different stations in their costumes and they would trick or treat at various stations around the school. And the, the school was housed In a church in Eugene, Oregon, I believe it was the first Presbyterian or something, something about the first first, I don't think it was first Baptist, I think it was like first Presbyterian or something like that in the in Eugene, Oregon. And there were different stations in the school where the kids were going to trick or treat, they didn't want the kids running like I did when I was a kid, you know, running around trick or treating. So Hannah didn't want me to come to her spaghetti dinner because she was afraid that when the teachers and the parents of the kids that she was friends with and the kids saw how fat I was, it would embarrass her. And she was hurt by my relapse, even though she didn't know the word relapse. She was embarrassed at how fat I was getting. That was in October of 1998 Hannah would turn four that year on December the 29th of that year still took two months on December the 29th of that year I experienced my very first day of complete and total clean absolute abstinence as it was defined at that time. And I have been abstinent as it was defined at that time, ever since that day. Now, the reason I say at that time is because for those who may not know, and this is not going to be good news, as you age, they're going to take food away from you, what you can eat when you're... You know, when you're 40 is not what you can eat when you're 50, what you can eat when you're 50 is not what you can eat when you're 60, and so on. As you age, they take food away from you. I'm sorry to have to tell you that, but it's the truth. So here I was carrying a message of the disease to my precious little baby girl who looked exactly like my dad. And she had his mannerisms, she had his sense of humor and still does to this day. Um, She was so affected by me carrying a message that when I was in very beautiful recovery not long after this move to Scottsdale, Arizona occurred. And she was now at this time, seven years old, not four years old, not almost four, but she was seven years old. She was watching with me uh, in the family room, a television program on ABC. And it was a TV show about a guy and his brother and they won the lottery. And they had been burglars, they had burgled people's homes, they had done a lot of lousy things. And now they had a list that they carried in their pocket of the people that they robbed and they were going around making good. So she looked at the premiere episode. This is without a word from me. This is after much exposure to Joe and Charlie and much exposure to everything that I would listen to in the car and in the house and all my phone conversations. She said, Those guys are just doing their eighth and ninth step, right, Dad? And I said, Yes, Mamala, that's what they're doing. They're doing their eighth and ninth step. That's correct, without a word from me. Well, today we're going to examine the outside world, the employer. And this program is easiest to practice in the meetings. It's very easy for me to be a good boy in quotes. If you're listening on podcast, I'm making air quotes right now. It's very easy for me for 90 minutes or an hour a day to be a good boy, right? I can behave for a short period of time. So the the workplace is the easier place to work the program. The harder place The easiest is in the meetings, excuse me, then it's a little easier in the workplace because you have a certain deportment that you must follow. And then the hardest place of all to work this is in the home, the hardest. But let's take a look at two employers and we're gonna start on page 136. And before I say anything more about this chapter, I wanna make it known for those historians who are out there. This is the only chapter in the big book other than the stories. This is the only chapter in the first 164 pages other than the doctor's opinion, okay? So between the doctor's opinion and page 164, that's page one through 164. This is the only chapter not scribed by Bill Wilson and who scribed this chapter was Hank Parkhurst. And Hank was a very pivotal man in the history of us having the book. He was a big power driver. He made Bill Wilson seem like a a piker. He was a power driver and he believed that we needed this book. And at one point a publisher offered Bill Wilson after perusing two chapters of the book, they perused Bill's story and they perused more about alcoholism. They said, can you write a whole book like this? And Bill said, yes, and he did. But they said, we'll give you $1,500 advance, which at that time seemed like a hundred million dollar advance to Bill Wilson. Bill didn't have a pot or a window to throw it out of. So 1,500 was like, oh my God, yes, who do I have to kill? And Hank Parkhurst convinced him, Bill, if these guys are willing to give you a $1,500 advance, there must be something here. We've got to keep this for ourselves, for the program, and not sell it to an outside uh, enterprise. And it turned out to be godsend because now AA has its own book and there's no publisher that can change it alter it, add to it, subtract from it. The Alcoholics Anonymous is the final arbiter of what's in the book. And it would take a two thirds majority, two thirds majority to change even one punctuation between the doctor's opinion and page 164. And I don't believe they would ever touch uh, Bob's story Bill Dotson, Fitz Mayo, Jimmy Burwell, Dave B. Uh, I don't believe that they will ever touch those stories ever because it would be sacrilegious to, to bother those. Marty, Marty Mann. Uh, and I believe, I hope, this is just my personal hope. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm hoping it's going to happen that at some point Clancy Emmislin's story will be included in some edition of the book. If he didn't write it, then I'm hoping that someone will because he is worthy of having his story included in this most special book. And that is my hope that at some point his story or Chuck C will, will be in there. Chuck didn't write his story ever, but you know it would be interesting. But anyway, that's just my personal opinion. And I think that it would be great if Clancy's story were to be included at some point uh, in this book he died one year ago. Okay, let's take a look and what we're going to what I'm going to attempt to do what we're going to attempt to do today is look at this chapter in a way that maybe makes more sense that's more meaningful to you as a person rather than just looking at it as the relationship between this nameless large company and its its many many employers. So let's take a look at it from a standpoint of a different viewpoint. But let's take a look at what it says, and then let's try to apply it. Among many employers, I'm on page one thirty-six, to employers, chapter 10. Among many employers nowadays, we think of one member who has spent much of his life in the world of big business. Some of us work for big business, some of us don't. Some of us, I work for myself. He has hired and fired hundreds of men. He knows the alcoholic as the employer sees him. His present views ought to prove exceptionally useful to businessmen everywhere, but let him tell you. I was at one time assistant manager of a corporation department employing 6,600 men. Now, the company that he worked for was Standard Oil. And he worked for Standard Oil. He worked for, uh, he had a company of his own called Honor Dealers that Bill Wilson worked for and also Jimmy Burwell worked for. And it was, they were selling automobile polish. (sighs) They were selling automobile polish. And how did he get to New Jersey where he met Bill? He got to New Jersey because Standard Oil transferred him to Standard Oil of New Jersey. Okay, 6,600 men, one day my secretary came in saying that Mr. B insisted on speaking with me. I told her to say that I was not interested. I had warned him several times that he had but one more chance. Not long afterward, he had called me from Hartford, that's in Connecticut, on two successive days, so drunk he could hardly speak. I told him he was through finally and forever. My secretary returned to say that it was not Mr. B on the phone. It was Mr. B's brother, and he wished to give me a message. I still expected a plea for clemency, but these words came through the receiver. I just wanted to tell you Paul jumped from a hotel window in Hartford last Saturday. He left us a note saying you were the best boss he had ever had and that you were not to blame in any way. Now, let's take a look at these paragraphs. And let's match it to the lives that we have led thus far. Now, I'm going to make several assumptions. Now, I know that you're not supposed to assume, A-S-S-U-M-E, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. I get that. But I'm going to make some assumptions here. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me so I don't make an ass out of you or me. I'm going to assume that if you are here on this meeting and there are 122 of you here right now, I thank you for attending, but I'm going to assume that things have not gone really well for you. I'm going to assume that none of you, not one of you came in here on a roll. You came in here because life did not treat you well, that things were just not going the way you had hoped that they would go. So what I'm gonna point out is what we can garner from these paragraphs is the horrible, and in most cases, permanent loss that this disease brings into a life. We have lost time, we have lost opportunity, We have lost dignity, self-esteem. We have done shameful things born out of the defects of character that were accentuated by a disease that wrought into our life at an earlier age than most people suffer from alcoholism or drug addiction or love addiction or sex addiction. Many of us, although not all of us, were highly afflicted, highly affected as children. Some of us, not so much. But every single one of us, because of this disease, has left behind relationships, opportunity, dreams, and time. I remember as a child, I developed very, very young age, a very defeatist attitude about life. I saw things as a catastrophe. I knew that success was for others, but not for me. I knew that love and sex and opportunity were there for the thin, there for the fortunate, there for the rich, there for the wonderful, but not for me. I never saw myself in the picture of good fortune. I never saw myself as being able to get the girl. Yeah, I have friends of mine, I'm just gonna use that relationshipy kind of thing as an example. I have friends of mine, and most of my friends are married. Most of my friends are, if they're not married, they're hooked up. They would go into a situation where we would see a, a, a female, whether we were 30, 13 or 60. And they knew in their mind, they could get her to go out with them or get her to talk to them. And I knew in my mind that that would not be possible. That there's no way that she's going to talk to me. I was the fattest person that she had probably ever met. I had then and have now bubby arms and a fat stomach. I don't have a fat stomach anymore, but I had a big rear end. And how was I going to be someone that a female is gonna look at and wanna get to know as anything but a friend. And so when I say I was emasculated by this disease, physically, you can use your imagination to understand what this disease did to me, but I was emasculated emotionally. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. When I say that I was emasculated emotionally, this is what I mean. I didn't dare dream dreams. I didn't dare think that I could do well in school. I did just enough to get by. I was a very, very marginal student at best. I tested well, but I was a very marginal student. And the saddest words of tongue or pen are these few words it might have been. I could have done so much better with the one life I had. I didn't know how to get out of the way of this disease. And yes, I had some glaring deficiencies in my life. I didn't have the support of my parents. They were dead by the time I was 24 years old. I didn't have any money behind me or anybody that could push me or help me at all. But what I didn't have was the will the confidence to overcome these things. And they are overcomable. I don't know if overcomable is a word. They are there to be overcome. I could have done so much better than what I did. And sometimes I look back in my life and I want to cry of where I ended up professionally and where I ended up romantically and where I ended up in a lot of areas in my life. And then I'm reminded that there were things and are things about my life that are not only wonderful, but enviable. I have a lot of friends. My bills are paid, things could be worse. I wish I didn't have to work anymore. I wish I didn't have to sell on the telephone, which which gets tougher every single day. I wish that I had a different kind of life. I wish that I was whatever. But the bottom line is things could be worse. I have health. I walk three miles a day, six days a week. Um, I'm alive. I'm 67 years old and I'm alive. And I know that may seem kind of basic, but doctors have been signing my death certificate for 40, 50 years. They have been pronouncing me dead for a very, very long time. I'm not a rich man, but my bills are paid. And the only debt that I, I have no credit card debt at all whatsoever. I ran into a little snafu after the divorce. I started getting some credit card debt, blah, blah, blah. And a friend of mine came forward and found a credit card with zero interest. I got one of those. I paid the debt down, eliminated the debt, didn't pay it down, eliminated the debt, And I've been debt free. I've been a divorce 10, 11 years. I haven't had credit card debt. I pay zero interest a year in credit card interest because I pay my bill. When it comes in, I knock it out paid. I don't, I have debt on my house. I paid cash for my car. I bought a car two years ago. My little car is out there. My little, uh, uh, Honda is out there, and I love my car. My car is great; gets me where I want to go. It's only got like seven thousand miles on it because you know during the pandemic, where did I go? And you know, I don't, I don't drive that much anyway. I'm, I live in Scottsdale, so things are right here. You know, they're right on top of me. But you know what? My car is mine. I don't have payments on it. Whatever bill comes in, I knock it out. But the thing that I can't get around is that not only did I hurt myself, but I know cosmically I hurt my folks who saw that I was struggling in school, not because I was stupid, I didn't do my homework. I joke about, you know, I don't want any math questions. I could have done algebra, I could have done geometry. All I would have had to do was stop eating long enough to do my freaking homework. And if you just do the homework in math, it's really not that complicated. It's really not that tough. It's really not that hard. But I didn't do it. I was eating and eating and watching television and doing all kinds of crazy things in the house. And then I would go to bed much too late and I'd be a zombie the next day at school. And it's just, you know, I, I just I didn't do I didn't do life right. And all of us have left behind time. An opportunity and we've hurt people and we've hurt ourselves. We've eroded our lives through shame and guilt and remorse. And where did the behaviors come from in many cases that made us shameful, that made us regret, that hurt other people? They came from fear and its illegitimate son Anger and we lashed out at those around us, and we lashed out because we were physically uncomfortable, we were emotionally uncomfortable, we couldn't believe that there we were eating that yet again. We couldn't believe that in spite of all the willpower we could muster, we still didn't look like the other kids and we still couldn't wear the pants and we couldn't wear the sport coat and we couldn't fit into the shirts that our friends wore so easily or the dresses or the skirts or whatever girls wear women wear. So we, became angry. We were never comfortable in our skin. We were never comfortable in life. Many of us have a lot of social anxiety. Many of us are isolators because we remember well. We remember well the people who abused us either for being too fat or too skinny, or they had comments about what we were eating, or what we were not eating, and so we withdrew. And the years went by, and the shame and the guilt and the fear and the hatred and the self-loathing became worse and worse and worse. You see, I've said this many times. If all the food did was make me fat, it wouldn't have been as terrible as it turned out to be. The food degraded me in my own eyes. The food pulled God into the muck in my own eyes because I blamed God. I couldn't blame my mother anymore after she died. I blamed her for everything. And when she was dead, I still blamed her for a while, but then I would blame God. And I would shake my fist at God and say, F you God. If you're really there, why am I in this kind of situation, alone and desperate? Why am I in this situation? Why me? And God said, why not you? I've got a job for you. Work these steps. I'll take care of the rest. But it took a long time before I would acquiesce to that request from God Almighty a long time, longer than I care to admit. And it has been a difficult road, but oh, so rewarding. So when we look at the beginning of this chapter to employers, we are first introduced to the devastating loss, loss of time, loss of opportunity, loss of everything that we held precious and the relationships both with God and those around us that might have been, could have been, should have been that were lost in the defects of character. And in many cases, those people are gone. We're of an age now where they've been gone for a while. And now we have an opportunity to repair the damage And for people like me, I never wanted to hear that because I knew work was gonna be involved. I wanted to just die because death was so much easier than working hard, I thought. And now I find every single day that no matter what the situation is, working hard is better than dying. Working hard gives me results that I never could have dreamed possible. Yes, I still did those things that I'm ashamed of. Yes, I said ugly things. Yes, I lied when the truth would have been better. Yes, I wrote bad checks and didn't pay my bills. And I treated people very, very badly. I lied right to their face and manipulated and did whatever I could do to get my hands on the damn food and food became much more important than people. Milk Duds and Bunch of Crunch and Almond Joy and Doritos and ice cream were my lovers, my best friends, my parents, my children, my everything. And I didn't know how to transitionalize between how I was living and the recovery that was promised to me. There is much more to this disease than putting down the food. There is a transition that the steps will bring me through if I keep working them and keep diligently doing the work in front of me. And I will give you this assurance that if that's happened for me, it can happen for you. Let's see what Hank Parkhurst writes now. Another time as I opened a letter which lay on my desk, a newspaper clipping fell out. It was the obituary of one of the best salesmen I had ever had. After two weeks of drinking, he had placed his toe on the trigger of a loaded shotgun. The barrel was in his mouth. I had had discharged him for drinking six weeks before. Still another experience, a woman's voice came faintly over long distance from Virginia. She wanted to know if her husband's company insurance was still in force. Four days before he had hanged himself in his woodshed, I had been obliged to discharge him for drinking, though he was brilliant, alert, and one of the best organizers I had ever known. Now, we take a look at some of the things that these two paragraphs are telling us. And that is not only do we hurt ourselves, but we hurt those closest to us. And the point that Hank Parkhurst is making here is also about loss. And so what I would get defeated by as a much younger person is I would say, ah, what's the use? I missed out. That ship has sailed. I might as well just eat myself to death. Here is what I will tell you based on my experience. Don't be Harlan Grabowski, be who God wants you to be. Work hard, no matter where you're at, be you six or 60, be you eight or 89 or 90, live until you die. When I was a little boy, a little boy, most of the people that my father would introduce me to were Holocaust survivors or survivors of religious hatred and murder in Europe prior to the Holocaust, as he was. He was the sole survivor of a family of 40 people who were murdered and obliterated off the face of the earth around the turn of the century in 1914 Russia, when it wasn't safe for people like me to live there. And this is what they would say to me with the numbers on their arm. They would say this to me, live until you die. Live until you die. These were people that had seen humanity at its worst. There has never been a greater crime against the human race than the Holocaust. Children, babies, developmentally delayed, handicapped, political prisoners, blind, deaf, Anybody that was different, polio, were in those gas chambers. They had seen humanity at its base worst. And there they were telling me, live until you die. What does live until you die mean? It means something different today than it meant then. Then, when I was nine or 12, it meant get as many Reese's peanut butter cups as you can get. And that's living. That was going through my mind. If I'm going to live life to the fullest, then I'm going to amass a large collection of Reese's peanut butter cups and eat them. And this to me was living. What it means to me now is totally different. It means wherever you are, whatever you are, whatever your afflictions, whatever is in front of you, maximize everything that you can maximize because this is it, this is not a dress rehearsal. And when we go out from the disease, when we die from this disease, if we die from this disease, we are going to hurt those who loved us. You may be saying there is nobody who loves me. That's not true. Somewhere on this earth is somebody who loves you. Somewhere on this earth is somebody who will miss you when you die, even if it's just the rest of us. When some of you don't come to the meetings, especially the ones I go to, I i don't go to the meeting, I can't miss you. But if you don't go to the meetings at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club on Zoom, I miss you. I notice that you're not there. I noticed that you're not there. If you didn't go to Baylor, which those people have just, they've gone crazy. They've gone out of their minds since winning the national championship in basketball last year. But I miss you when you're not there. <clears throat> So we want to live until we die. And you may be wondering, what do I have to do? All that's required of you is to follow the simple kit of tools laid at your feet in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's see where Hank wants to go now. Here were three exceptional men lost to this world because I did not understand alcoholism as I do now. What irony, I became an alcoholic myself. Hank Parkhurst was a everyday drinker. He was a patient of Dr. Silkworth. He will, he will go in eventually to the town's hospital in New York City. And actually, for those who do not know, the most of the big book was written in Newark, New Jersey at Honor Dealers offices on Walnut Street in Newark. So most of this book was written in New Jersey because that's where Hank's office was, Seventeen one. There's a plaque on the wall that commemorates the fact, now it's not honor dealers anymore, obviously they're all dead, but most of the book, not all of it, not chapter five, and not the doctor's opinion, but most of the rest of the book was written in Newark, New Jersey, at a place called Honor Dealers, which is a business that Hank had and Jimmy Burwell worked there and Bill Wilson worked there and Hank worked there. They were set to put DuPont out of business and they were selling automobile polish, which obviously didn't didn't really work too well. Okay, I became an alcoholic myself and and, uh, and but for the intervention of an understanding person, Bill Wilson, I might have followed in their footsteps. My downfall cost the business community unknown thousands of dollars for it takes real money to to train a man for an executive position. This kind of waste goes on unabated. We think the business fabric is shot through with a situation which might be helped by better understanding all around. And think about what we do to ourselves and think about what we do to the people that we love and think about what we do to the people who love us. And sometimes I just have to scream into a pillow. Sometimes I just have to cry. I know that that's not very manly and I know that that's not the most masculine thing you're gonna hear me say today. But sometimes when I'm watching some of you circling the drain and I see how beautiful you are inside and out, but you're just not recovering, sometimes, not always, or myself, I just have to cry because I know that life is so fragile and time is so precious and that there isn't a lot of it to waste. I've wasted enough time. It's time to live until you die. And when you live until you die, as my Holocaust survivor, friends of my dad would tell me you're doing everything you can do on page 84 of the big book. It says, we have entered the world of the spirit. On step in step five of this book, one of the promises of step five is that we can look the world in the eye. One of the promises of step nine in this book is the freedom. I call nine and five the emancipation steps. Nine and five are emancipators. What is an emancipator? An emancipator is one who sets you free. And this disease is a form of slavery. It's a form of bondage. It's a form of prison. And the great emancipators are five and nine. Five puts me in touch with the fact that I'm just another human being, that these thoughts, these ideas that I've had in my head about the guilt and the shame and the remorse that I've had and the crushes on girls that went unrequited and the opportunities that I never got to be the person that I wanted to most be, they are repairable. And though these ideas were not secret unto me, that people who I never would have believed in a million years had those same thoughts, even though I would have never believed it in a zillion million years because they were female or because they were what I thought was good looking or they were men who were thin or they were wealthy. I couldn't believe that they would say as I would tell them in my fourth step what was going on they would say me too and in step nine i round off the process of being able to walk the streets a free man because when i make restitution i don't like amends so much amends is AA language and restitution is Oxford group language. What is restitution? It's the root word of restitution is restit, which means to restore. It's the same root word as the as the word restore. And in the Oxford group, they didn't use amends, they used restitution but I'll go with AA language here for just a minute, amends. When we change the constitution of the state of Illinois, or we change the constitution of the country, we're not going to apologize to the constitution of Illinois or the country. We're going to change it. So amend means to alter, to repair, to alter, to repair. And this is what it means. When we're doing those restitutions, we are altering the course of our life and we are repairing to the best of our ability, the damage done in the past. So we look at these paragraphs so far that we've covered in this chapter and we're talking about loss. And when we work the steps, God in his infinite wisdom begins to repair those areas of our life that may have nothing to do with your food plan, that may have nothing to do with that kind of thing. So when the disease afflicts a person, be they three or 39 or 90, the disease doesn't just afflict your waistline, your weight, It doesn't just afflict that, it starts to putrefy. It starts to infect and it starts to destroy areas of your life that have nothing to do with what it says on the scale. And when the recovery comes into my life, when the recovery is alive in my life, the recovery becomes as progressive as the disease is, and it starts to heal me in areas I did not even know were destroyed. My relationship with God is a good one. My relationship with other people is a good one. My relationship with myself is a good one. I trust me. I trust me. I like me, not in an egotistical, insane kind of way, but I like the person that I am today. Why? Because I can depend on me for the only time in my life. I knew I was lying when I said I wasn't going to eat ice cream anymore. I knew I was lying when I said I was going to do better in school. I knew I was lying when I said half the things or 99% of the things that came out of my mouth. And I'd lie with the best of them. I'd lie when the truth would serve me better. But now I love the fact that I can trust myself, that I can say yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no. And I can tell you the truth. I don't have to be a Democrat because you're a Democrat. I don't have to be a Republican because you're a Republican. I can be who I am and what I am and that's okay. And if it's not okay, then I don't know what to tell you. I'm gonna be who I am. I'm a cub-loving, duck-loving person. I'm born and raised in the greatest city you could be born and raised in. Uh, The crown jewel of the Midwest flows through my veins. Whether I live in Scottsdale, Arizona or Scottsdale, Antarctica, I am born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. That's who I am. And that's what i am and i'm probably not going to change anytime soon so and that's okay i don't have to beat you with that so let's continue and let's see where we're at we're on page 137 nearly every modern employer feels a moral responsibility for the well-being of his help and he tries to meet these responsibilities that he has not always done so for the alcoholic is easily understood. To him, the alcoholic has often seemed a fool of the first magnitude because of the employee's special ability or his own strong personal attachment to him. The employer has some has sometimes kept such a man at work long beyond a reasonable period. Some employers have tried every known remedy in only a few instances, has there been a lack of patience and tolerance. And we who have imposed on the best of employers can scarcely blame them if they have been short with us. The relationship between a company and its employees today is very, very different. We hear the word tenure. Where does that word come from? Tenure comes from ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, when a man worked for you for 10 years, that's where the word tenure comes from, you are responsible for him and his family. You, are respons- you were responsible for him and his family. So the word tenure comes from that. People didn't live very long. So if a person worked for you for 10 years, that was a pretty long time. If a person was 40, they were considered very old. Most people didn't live to be 40, 50 years old. Most people were dead by the time they were 35, you know, 40 years old, they were gone. You know, people started families as teenagers. They well, Sometimes you see that today too, but what you know what I'm driving at. It was a different time. It was a much different world. And so the responsibility is very, very different today. The gold watch ceremony of, you know, years and years ago ended probably in the 50s and the 60s. You don't see people working at the same company, the same thing as often anymore. You don't, you just don't see that anymore. I read something not long ago that people today that are under 30 years of age, will change careers, not jobs, not companies, they will change careers four times in their life. That is mind blowing to me. That is absolutely mind blowing to me. When I was a kid, if you were a teacher, you were a teacher. If you fixed televisions, you fixed televisions. If you, whatever it is, you were the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, that was what you did. You didn't change, you didn't, you didn't alter that. But today, everything is really, really different. So the responsibility is a little different, but the thought is very much the same. In other words, we have a business and we have salespeople or we have whatever we have. And the idea of business is to make money. And when people are unusually talented, we cut them a lot more slack than we would cut them if they weren't helpful to our bottom line. And isn't it funny that the alcoholic, the compulsive overeater, are usually very, very productive, very uh, unbelievable employees in a lot of ways, and then in some ways, not so much because of the disease. Let's see what we have here. We're at the top of 138, boys and girls. Here, for instance, is a typical example. An officer of one of the largest banking institutions in America knows I no longer drink. One day he told me about an executive of the same bank who, from his description, was undoubtedly alcoholic. This seemed to be like an opportunity to be helpful. So I spent two hours talking about alcoholism, the malady, and described the symptoms and the and results as well as I could. His comment was very interesting, but I'm sure this man is done drinking. He has just returned from a three-month leave of absence, has taken a cure, looks fine. And to clinch the matter, the board of directors told him this was his last chance. Now, this paragraph is talking about the massive misunderstanding that so many people have of what this disease is. Now, here is what I'm going to say. I get this call 50 times a year. How can I make my husband, wife, children, boss, principal, uh, how can I make this person understand about my disease? And my answer is you can't. I will never understand what it is like ever to wake up in the morning and want to stick a needle in my arm full of heroin. I am not a drug addict, I, am, I do not do intravenous drugs. If I have to take a shot, I demand a sucker and a coloring book and a balloon. No, if I have to take a shot, then I, okay, I'll roll up my sleeve and I'll take it, but I don't like it. It's nothing I look forward to. It's nothing I want to do. I do not understand what it's like to want to drink liquor. I just I don't get it. I've never had this thought in my head in my entire life. Never, ever one time have I ever thought, man, I want to drink whiskey or I want to drink beer. That thought just never crossed my mind. If I've had 20 drinks of alcohol lifetime, that's a lot of drinking. And the only time I drank is when my friends kind of chided me into it. And I'll tell you the truth, I probably never finished one drink I ever started in my entire life. I always found a plant or I found a toilet or I found some way to ditch the rest of that liquor because I'd much rather go to McDonald's and get a milkshake any day of the year over consuming liquor, P-U-P-U-P-U. Now, this call that I get, how can I make these other people understand I answer them. You can't, you can't. The only person on the face of this earth that has to understand that I am a compulsive overeater is me. You don't have to understand it. Now I have some very, very good friends that are in this program and I will tell you about one friend in particular. She lives in California. And I have another one that lives in Colorado, same deal. But I'll just talk about the one that lives in in California for now. She is an anorexic, bulimic, and restrictor and compulsive overeater. So she identifies as a compulsive overeater because it says it all. She gets a high out of restricting the amount of food that she eats. I don't understand that at all. She is anorexic. In other words, she will go periods of time where she will get a high from not eating food, or she will eat food and she will purge through regurgitation. She will purge out that food. I don't understand that at all. Or she will eat and gain weight in massive amounts. She is a gutter, back alley. Garbage can, dumpster diving, compulsive overeater. Yet to look at her, she doesn't have bubby arms. She doesn't have fat and stretch marks like I do. She doesn't have all that stuff like I do. She and I have the same disease. She is as sick as me, but to look at her, you'd never know it. I don't understand what it's like to be a bulimic. I have a friend in Colorado. She's an exercise bulimic. And my friend in California is a regurgitation bulimic. There's also laxative bulimics too. I don't get it. I don't have to get it. It doesn't matter whether I get it or not. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. The only ones that have to get that you have a disease are you. And in our zeal to make others understand, we get frustrated. Don't let it get you. Do you understand what it's like to be a camel? Do you understand what it's like to be a German shepherd? No, you don't. And you never will. I cannot for the life of me understand why my German shepherds would go in the pool at three o'clock in the morning and start swimming around at two o'clock in the morning when it was really hot in Arizona? Why don't you go in the daytime? Why do you have to make such a disturbance at two o'clock in the frickin' morning when they're jumping in the water? I couldn't understand why. But yet, two o'clock in the morning, psh, psh, you'd hear these two splashes. And then they would drink the water out of the pool, which I, ugh, they, I that I, oh God. But anyway, that aside, because I don't want to make you sick, that aside, why is two o'clock in the morning, the prime swimming time, could not understand that for the life of me. And that was what time they wanted to go swimming was two o'clock in the freaking morning. So I never understood it. I never will understand it. And that's okay. The only one that has to know is you. Stop trying to make people understand. It's not going to happen, number one. Number two, let's say that it did happen. What do you got now? You got nothing. So I have to understand that I have a disease and I have to understand that I have to work the steps. Now, It's about a half hour later than I thought it was because I just looked up there and it's 1101. I can't even fathom how fast this went, but we're going to stop and I'm going to turn this back over to Karen. K. Karen is in New York and I'm going to turn this. What is the date next Saturday? Hold on. Let me September 3rd. the date next Saturday is nine three. Okay. So I'm going to write down now before we go to q and I hope today was helpful. This is a little harder chapter to present. The hardest thing for me to work on is step two, because it just riles. It just gets so many people a little mushugi. but this is hard stuff to, uh, to, um, present also. So, um, it's, it's a little tougher, it's a little tougher. So before we turn it back over to Karen, if you asked a question last week or the week before, stay back a little bit here, stay back, let the others come to the front and when they're done, you can come up and ask your question. No math questions for the love of God, no math questions and no food questions please i'm not qualified to answer your food questions so don't ask them please karen i don't know where you are but i know you're out there so oh, are.
0: thank okay. you harlan for another stellar job i'd like to also to thank nancy J for being our host kathy m co-host eileen w from new jersey co-host and sue Al will be taking over the Q&A, and thank you very much.